the National Archives podcast series, The Second World War and Roach's Expansion to the West, a Swiss pharmaceutical company in the United Kingdom, presented by Alexander L. Vieri. Thank you very much. Welcome and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure that I have the opportunity of presenting some facts about the history of Roche in Britain to you here. And I would like to thank Cherry Toop and Alex Ritchie for giving me the opportunity of talking to you today. The deep reason for that is that the historical archive of Roche, which is based in Basel in Switzerland, has recently been included into the Archon directory of business archives, which are of interest to British history. And I, of course, want to make the point today and to prove to you that an archive in Switzerland actually can be interesting and vital for British history. Before we dive into the specific history of Roche in the United Kingdom, I would like to give you first some initial facts about Roche in general in order to contextualize what you're going to see about Roche in the United Kingdom. I think it is important that you have some basic background on Roche's company history in general. Roche was uh, founded in the city of Basel. We have here a, an aerial photograph taken from the hot air balloon by Eduard Spelterini. It is also a photograph from our archives, of course. Everything you're going to see in my presentation is material from our company archive. And as you can see, Basel is here on the Rhine-Knee, the so-called Rhine-Knee. The Rhine changes its direction here in Basel. And we have the factory, the first factory of Roche, sitting here on the outskirts of the city of Basel. If you have a look at the economic history of Basel, Basel is, of course, a very old city. The first Celtic settlements date back to 500 BC, and Basel was the first time mentioned in Chronicles in 237. And Basel really got a boost in the 15th century, in 1431 to 1449, when it was the seat of the Council of Basel and where the city became one of the centers of Christianity. Due to the Council of Basel, huge paper production was started in Basel and um, also many publishing houses set up shop in the city in order to publish the decisions of the Council of Basel. And one of these uh, publishers, Schwabe, which was founded in 1488, is still existing today. In 1459, Pope Pius II endowed the University of Basel, the oldest in Switzerland, and only in 1501, Basel joined as the 11th canton of the Swiss Confederation. That's rather late compared to other cantons. In 1543, the first anatomical atlas, which was correct, the Humanis Corpus Fabrica by Andreas Vesalius, was published in Basel. From 1600, Basel became a center for the textile industry, especially silk ribbons were produced in vast quantities. These silk ribbons were very fashionable at the time. Uh, all dresses were adorned with them, so they were a quite a big business. And in order to produce these textiles, these silk ribbons, an auxiliary industry developed, which produced dye stuffs, soaps, and uh, also other uh, chemicals which were necessary for the production of these ribbons. Of course, chemicals, these were all extraction chemicals. Everything was extracted from plants, mainly. In 1854, British William Henry Perkin developed the first chemically synthesized agent 
which became something which you could sell. So this was uh, the colorant Mauwein, a dye stuff, a violet hue, which uh, 1854 came onto the market and became a bestseller immediately. And it was the very first product which was synthetically produced, a synthetic, synthetically chemically produced agent, which could be sold in large quantities. And from that point onwards, many companies were set up in Britain, in Germany, and also in Switzerland, which were devoted to, to, devoted to the exploitation of uh, this new technology, this novel technology of the synthetic chemistry. And one of them also set up shop in Basel. It was the Ziba Corporation, which was set up in 1859. Sando, another one, which was devoted to the exploitation of uh, the chemical synthesis, followed suit. And some other companies were also set up in Basel, which were devoted to this new technology, synth synthetic chemistry. Now, the interesting thing for us to know today is that the second large pharmaceutical company in Basel, Novartis, consists of all these companies. So all these companies which were founded at the time because they wanted to exploit the uh, synthetic chemistry, they formed Novartis today. And Roche has remained separate, is a completely separate company, mainly because of its historic origin. Roche never was an active part or played an active part in the production of dye stuffs and colorants. And at the beginning, Roche was not even in the strict term, uh, sense of the term, a chemical company. Roche was founded by an entrepreneur from Basel, Fritz Hoffmann, and he came from a very wealthy family, a family which had made its fortune in silk trade. And his vision was the industrial manufacture of, of standardized and branded pharmaceuticals, which was quite a novel thing at the time. If you were sick around 1900, you would come to a pharmacy which looked totally different at the time than our today's modern pharmacies. These were more alchemist slabs with stuffed crocodiles hanging from the ceiling, with weird substances in uh, big glass jars. Medicine, which was often administered at the time, was mummy, dried mummy, which was then pulverized and given to patients. So you were lucky if you had any desired effects and if you didn't suffer only side effects from what the pharmacists put together in these kind of shops. Fritz Hoffmann was marketing oriented because he saw that there is a market need, a need for a reliable pharmaceutical product which would allow the people to manage, for example, their headache. So there was a market need and he wanted to fulfill that market need with reliable products that were branded and produced in an industrialized way. He also wanted to have a global company. He loved traveling and therefore he wanted to have a global company right from the beginning. If you have a look at what Mr. Hoffmann's factory looked like around 1900, you see that it doesn't bear any resemblance with a chemical factory. It is more a, a farm with a straw here, the hay and these big wicker bottles uh, over there. And this is actually quite right. All the early Roche products were extracted from plant, from plants. So the active pharmaceutical ingredient in the products were plant extractions, and Roche didn't master the chemical synthesis until the 1920s, 1930s. And this again shows you that Roche has a very different uh, development story than all these other pharmaceutical companies, which today, for example, form Novartis. But it's also a very different development story from in compared with other pharmaceutical companies like the large German manufacturers 
which all started with uh, chemical synthesis and were not from the beginning devoted to medicine, but only after a certain while, by exploiting chemical synthesis, came up to compounds which could be used as pharmaceuticals, more by accident than by design. This also becomes clear if you compare the Roche site to the sites of Sado or Geigi, competitors of Roche at the time, which were devoted to chemical manufacture, to chemical synthesis. These are really big industrial parks sites already at the time. And you can also see that the chemical industry obviously had its first growth peak before 1900, whereas the pharmaceutical industry, this term didn't exist until only after the Second World War, was a whole different story. It had the pharmaceutical industry experienced its first, first uh, growth peak only after the Second World War in the 1950s and 1960s. And that's an aerial photograph of the Roche site taken at the same time as the sites of the competitors you have just seen. Roche also was different, not only because it was not based on a technology, in this case the technology of chemical synthesis, but market-oriented, it was also special because it, right from the beginning, was conceived as a global company by Fritz Hoffmann Laroche. Fritz Hoffmann, as I said, traveled, liked to travel a lot, and therefore he wanted to have a global company. So Roche did not grow in its home market, become first successful in its home market, and then expand, expanded to other countries. It was set up right from the beginning in a variety of countries. And this is all the more surprising, as Fritz Hoffmann didn't have a product to sell in the beginning. He invested in factories, and he invested in new staff, which was hired, um, before there was any income from a sellable product. So the risk he took was considerable, and Roche in Basel was founded in 1896, and the first affiliates were founded in Grenzach in Germany and in Milan in Italy in 1897, practically in the, at the same time. Then, after um, the first sellable products appeared, Fritz Hoffmann could uh, expand his global vision. Paris was founded in 1903. Roche Natli in New York was founded in 1905. Roche in Vienna was founded in 1907. Roche in the UK, in London, was founded in 1908. In 1910 saw the foundation of Roche in St. Petersburg. 1912, Roche Yokohama in Japan. In 1920, we have Roche in uh, Riga and also shortly afterwards, Roche in Warsaw and in Prague was founded. 1925 saw the foundation of Roche in Shanghai, China. 1929, Roche Bombay. And 1930, uh, Roche was founded at the same time in Buenos Aires and in Rio de Janeiro. So after barely 30 years, Roche was a global company and present with its own affiliates uh, in the entire world, which is quite unique. Here are some of the early products of the company. And as I said before, they were all extracted, extracted medicines from plants. One bestseller was Digalin, uh, a heart medicine extracted from the red foxglove, Digitalis purpurea. It came to the market in 1904 and was developed in collaboration with the University of Zurich. Pantopone, another very important product which was sold in the UK under the name of Omnopone, was introduced in 1909. It was an analgesic sedative which made for the first time pain-free operations possible. And Pantopone 
was extracted from opium. It was an opium preparation, the total alkaloids of opium. All the other products you see here were also extracted from plants, more or less, and they all have a certain link either to digitalis preparations or to opium preparations. That Roche was not a chemical factory becomes also apparent if you have a, a look in, our, in one of our in-house company museums. This is uh, the museum in Roche-Grenzach, devoted to the manufacture of pharmaceuticals around 1900. And as you can see, we have these filter presses here or um, these, uh, this equipment which sometimes looks more like a distillery, a whiskey distillery, for example. And this is, of course, not by accident. This is exactly what Roche did at the time. It was a purely agraric, more agraric uh, production process than a chemical production process. Fritz Hoffmann's marketing methods were quite unique. He very soon realized that his family name Hoffmann, with the H in the beginning, was not pronounceable in many languages the world over. So he took the family name of his wife, Roche, which was short and crisp and could be printed on tablets, for example, as a short name. And he also had the idea to brand his products. And we believe that he got his idea for branding from the producers of cognac, for example, because the cognac connoisseur does not order just a plain brandy or cognac, he always orders a brand, Hennessy or Hin, whatever. And we have very much the same concept here in Fritz Hoffmann's Kaff Syrup, Cyrilin. It has a brand name and added to it the short name of the company Roche. And there are even some similarities if we take this photograph of a Tokai wine from Hungary. It's even designed in a similar way as we see here in this original flaco, in this original bottle of Cyrilin, of the Kaff Syrup. So there is a strong link in between the producers of uh, cognac or wine and early branded pharmaceuticals, as you can see. But his marketing methods were unique also in other respects. For example, in Catholic countries, he had these pictures of saints printed. They were given to the children in Sunday school and they used it, put it on their house altars, for example, or put, used it as Bible signs. And of course, they always made the link in between the good deeds of the saint depicted and the good deeds of the product to be expected. And there was a long advertisement text on the back of these little cards. In less religious countries, like in Germany, children played the part of the saint. So in order to make your children happy, these pictures tell us you have to give them cyrilin. And these photographs were uh, printed in many, many magazines and were used as advertisements, especially in Germany and always show happy children with an oversized bottle of Cyrilin. <laughs> Obviously in Russia, the snowman uh, took the role of the children. Why that is, I actually don't know, but uh, I think it was a, a nice advertisement to show to you. Trade fair stalls played an important role from a very early time onwards. We have a particularly interesting example from Dallas in 1926. And it shows you the problem Roche had with labeling itself. The term healthcare industry was not uh, invented until the 1970s. So there was no word for describing a company which was an industrial company, but focused on medicine or on medical products at the time. So Roche called itself the Hoffmann Laroche Chemical Works, a rather grand name for a company which up to 1926 
has never done chemical synthesis. And as you can see, the products were in the center and they are all, interestingly, extraction products as would be expected from Ross production program at the time. The fact that Roche could not be labeled and not be put in a box as an industry is something which had a side effect for the company, which was not welcome at first, but which played an important role in the development of the company culture of Roche. Roche was not a company in which people who were from a good background, were coming from a good or rich family, would be working in. They wouldn't want to employ with Roche, and we have here a quotation from a later uh, head of finances of Roche, Mr. Alfred Fuchs, from his autobiography, where he says, my journey of the chemical industry in Basel thus ended without even a chance of getting a new job. There still remained one company, though, Hoffman Laroche, but however, from all I had heard about the working conditions and the treatment of employees there, I couldn't possibly consider applying for a position with them. One of the main reasons for that was that it was just too foreign what Roche did. Um, Roche created all these strange syrups and powders and so on in order to improve health, which was regarded as something quite esoteric at the time. It was not a decent chemical company, certainly, and therefore Roche got many people who came from the borders of society, uh, who were thinking out of the box, would we say, today. And today this is regarded as something positive. At the time, this was not quite the case. But there are many examples in Roche's history of people who had strange twists and turns in their life, like this Mr. Sal here, who was a Russian aristocrat, who lost all his family in the Russian Revolution and then came to work for Roche. Or Dr. Alice Keller here, another uh, interesting story. She, uh, was hired by Roche in 1925, became the first female director of the company, and was sent, was sent to Japan to become general manager of Roche's operation in Japan in 1925. And also her partner, Mrs. Grete Rothenbach, was also sent to Japan by Roche, and Roche also paid her ticket, her ship ticket, to uh, Japan in order not to separate the couple, which is very remarkable for the 1920s, I think. In 1920, the company founder, Fritz Hoffmann, died and his successor became a Dr. Barrel, who came, in contrast to the company founder, from a very modest and poor background. He worked his way up. He became a doctor in 19, at age 24, so his dissertation, he submitted his dissertation at the age of 24, simply because there was no money to study longer. And he was a natural scientist, a chemist, and therefore strictly focused Roche on medical research and physiology. He was also the one who invented the traveling doctor, explaining to other doctors the benefits of medical products. These are figures which today are strongly condemned by many of the medical profession, of course. And in many ways, he coined the modern pharmaceutical industry as we know it today. And he became of prime importance also for Roche's image to the outside. He was the first one who realized that Roche was, as a medical industrial company, in a totally new field, in a new kind of uh, industry which did not exist before in that pure form as we see it in Roche, or as, we, as, the, as um, Roche was at the time. So he 
not only aligned Roche on strictly scientific communication, but he also tried to improve the image of the company to the outside and wanted to show the people that Roche is something different. And he wanted to do that with architecture, essentially. And that was the reason why he hired a very famous architect of his time, Professor Otto Salvisburg. We have a nice portrait of Mr. Salvisburg here. Salvisburg, originally uh, of Swiss origin, emigrated around 1900 to Germany and became one of the main architects in mid-war Germany, in the Germany of Weimar Republic, especially in Berlin, of course, where he had his office. Salvisburg already came back to Switzerland in 1929 because he was so shocked of the first appearances of Hitler's SA troops. He was one of the first intellectuals in uh, Berlin to leave the city. And he became professor for architecture at the Swiss Federal Polytechnic School in Zurich. Mr. Barrel, head of Roche, saw his chance and immediately hired Salvisburg for his private home, a very nice modern villa in Basel with a huge windows that could be electrically lowered into the floor. So this entire garden hall here had huge electrically operated windows and a nice staircase. And after Mr. Barrel was satisfied with that house created for him by Salvisburg, Mr. Salvisburg was given the commission for the main administration building of Roche, which has some similarities to the private home of Mr. Barrel, as you can see. So the architect the private architect of the boss of Roche also became the company architect. Now, Salvisburg's style is, was totally foreign in Switzerland at the time. And his style, you can see here some other of his buildings for Roche-Wellingarden City. I will tell you a lot more about it in a minute. Roche-Milan here, a chemical production building in Basel and a pharmaceutical building. His style, of course, is very reduced. What he wanted to do is he wanted to liberate the people working in dusty, old, grubby factories, and he wanted to give these people nice, beautiful, airy surroundings uh, in which it would be a joy to work in, and which also exemplified Roche's scientificity, and also would show that Roche is a very modern, hygienic, new kind of company. He also said that only bad architects need expensive materials like polished marble or polished wood to adorn a building inside and that really good architect can just work with proportion and light and does not need more than proportion and light to create nice surroundings and nice interiors. We have here some of his uh, interiors which are all, as you can see, very modern and clean and it's a very crisp new kind of architecture for the time. The interesting thing about these buildings is that most of them are still in use for their original purpose. They have not been renovated, like our executive building. The executive building of Roche uh, has remained in the same state since 1936, and our executives are still very content and happy working in there. And also this pharmaceutical factory here, it's still FDA approved, and we still produce pharmaceuticals in there. So over a course of 70 years, or 80 years even, these buildings are still very much usable. Roche's architectural tradition, which has been founded by Salvisburg, um, is of course going on. We have a more modern example of a Canadian factory down here. And today it's Herzog und Dömeron, the architects of the Tate Gallery of Modern Art, who have taken the position as house architects of Roche. 
And just to give you a comparison what the competitors of Roche at the same time would build in Basel in 1936, this is the main administration building of the Geigel Company, which today is a part of Novartis, and you can see it was opened at the same time as the Salisbury buildings opened in, uh, in Basel, and nevertheless it is a totally different architectural language, um, centrally focused with columns, all the old traditional representation is in there, and it is a building of a chemical company, which already had seen its first growth, growth peak, whereas pharmaceuticals were something new, and this is exactly what Baril and Salvisberg wanted to show the people. So much about, short, about the short overview of Roche's history before we now dive into our holdings uh, in the archive regarding uh, British history, and I have to resort to my notes here because uh, that's not something in which I am so fluent as in the, oh sorry, as in the, the I am with the general Roche history of course. As you have seen before, Roche was founded in 1908 and of course Roche also sold its merchandise in the United Kingdom before, before 1908. But um, the products of the company were sold via an agency. This agent was Mr. Lawrence, Hugo Lawrence was his name here in London. And Mr. Lawrence later, after Roche decided to create its own affiliate here in London, became head of marketing of the young company, of the young new company. Britain, of course, was a very important market for Roche. It was one of the markets where already large pharmaceuticals manufacturers had established themselves, and the market was more or less already uh, prepared for modern pharmaceuticals here. And that was one of the main reasons why Roche wanted at any cost to be present here in the British market. So in December 1908, the Hoffmann-Laroche Chemical Works, again that dreadful name, uh, was founded and the stock capital amounted to 5,000 pounds. And Roche rented offices in seven and eight Idle Lane, near the fish markets of Billingsgate, which must have been quite an odorous experience, I think. And the working hours were 8.30 in the morning till 6.15 in the evening, including a one-hour lunch break and a 50-minute break in the afternoon for tea. Let's have a look at the first director of the company, Mr. Knapp, here at his desk. And the photograph there on the wall, that's the company founder, Fritz Hoffmann-Laroche, who was guarding everything there. Smoking, by the way, was not permitted in the offices, but this didn't hinder Fritz Hoffmann when he was present to smoke heavy cigars all day long, but he was the owner of the company, so he must be forgiven for that. This is a photograph of the cashes department, Miss Ironmonger and Mr. Boetler, who were responsible for the money. I think that's the reason why Mr. Boetler looks not very happy, because Roche was always short on money. The expansion process Roche has been in was um, costing a lot of money and Roche was notoriously short of cash. And this is the propaganda department as it was called at the time with Mr. Bailey and Mr. Ash. And this department, we will call it marketing department today, was of prime importance for Roche because they had a special idea to promote the cough syrup cyrilin, which you have already seen. They founded a special company to promote cyrilin, which today would be regarded as an over-the-counter product like Strepsils or so. And in order to support the Cyrilin marketing, they thought it would be a good idea to form a special separate company. 
the British market was highly competitive with uh, boots and welcome being present for decades already here. And that was the reason why they decided for the Sirling company. And they immediately set out to promote this product in newspapers. This here is a newspaper clicking, clipping from the Daily Telegraph. And you see that Switzerland and Switzerland as scenery played an important role in the marketing of that product. The Sirling company became operational in 1910. And the advertising, the advertising campaign also included very sort of colorful brochures. As you can see it here, that's the, that's the outer part of the brochure, that's the uh, jacket of the brochure. Again, Switzerland played an important role with this outsized Cyrilline bottle um, placed in the Swiss Alps. And of course, the slogan, a new medical discovery which creates anti-consumptive con anti conditions in the lungs, whatever you have to understand with, uh, under that. So the inside of the brochure, of course, again went on with a Swiss theme. Switzerland has come to Britain. Nature's lung cure, I think that's a slight exaggeration perhaps. <laughs> And Cyrilin um, obviously is also very good for rickety and scrofulous children. And it says here, Cyrilin makes healthy, strong and sturdy children with good appetites and lungs as sound as a bell, which is nice, isn't it? Um, even further miracles are to be expected from Cyrilin for the grown-ups. Cyrilin increases the weight by 12 to 15 pounds, obviously in a very short time after taking the cure. And the man with the moustache sitting on this uh, waking scales here seems to be quite content about his weight gain, which is or was regarded at the time as a, a sign of good health, of course. And this appearance of night sweats is also very important. The brochure also states that Cyrilin makes away with all these appliances, although I fail to understand what they are exactly, so please don't ask me. And no sprays, snuffs or fumigators are necessary. However, this was all to no avail. Cyrilin didn't become a bestseller in Britain, um, so in 1912 the company was abandoned again. Let's have a view into the card index department with an array of Roche beauties there, surrounding probably the sole telephone of uh, Lane offices. And what was very important for the company was that in 1912-1913 they could exhibit at the International Congress of Medicine in London, which was a breakthrough in the British market. And what I find particularly pleasing is that Roche exhibited directly beside a stall which advertised wine for uh, medical purposes. And it reads here, these wines are natural and pure. Um, and they are not chemically treated in any way, which is also uh, quite positive, I think. So Roche was um, surrounded by other quality products at the medical exhibition. In 1914, Roche also won a special contract, and it was one of the first really big orders of the young company in order to, to provide strychnine to Australia in order to get rid of the rabbits, which were becoming a big plague there. And even more interesting is the story of another contract which Roche won for the Navy, for the British Navy. I will tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. Here we have some historical advertisements of the time for the major products of Roche. 
And of course, they produced many uh, small leaflets like uh, this one here for Teocol or the addresses in the British colonies of Roche depots and so on, which were the main marketing method at the time of the company. What we have here is a photograph of the general office in Idle Lane, and I would like to draw your attention to the lady sitting over there in the corner. That's Miss Lydia Towey. Miss Towey has a legendary status in Roche's history because she started working in Roche, London, on the 5th of January, January 1909, and she quickly became uh, indispensable within Roche, and she remained an astonishing source for information, also, by the way, uh, for this presentation here, because we have uh, nice interviews with Miss Toby uh, showing, or it's, it's really a very interesting oral history account she's given us. She remained in Roche until 1964, until her retirement in 1964, and during these 55 years of her tenure at Roche, she was uh, leave, she left, or she, she was on sick leave only for two days, so that's quite astonishing, I think. <laughs> and what is also quite interesting about her is that she started traveling a lot while she worked at Roche, so she discovered her love for traveling, and we have found this photograph here uh, of Miss Toey in our archive, showing her in a discussion with uh, Emperor Haile Selassie of Abyssinia, which I find also quite interesting. I also would like to show you one of the very elegant letterheads of Roche, which were used at the time. And this letterhead here, although it dates from 1910, already points to a major problem Roche experienced during the First World War. It is addressed to the Roche factory in Grenzach in Germany. It's only seven kilometers away from Basel, which is in Switzerland, of course. But the, it was the main factory of Roche at the time, and also all the products sold in Britain were labelled in German, actually, because they were imported from the Grenzach factory. And this caused a lot of problems when uh, the First World War broke out, and the First World War really altered the situation for Roche dramatically. Not only was the number of staff halved, because many of the male employees were recruited for the army, but um, also Roche uh, had a lot of difficulties in procuring enough merchandise to sell. The Ministry of Interior then scrutinized uh, Roche and interviewed all the employees because um, they thought it's a German company and eventually Roche was discharged of all allegations regarding the collaboration with the enemy but it was nevertheless something which occurred quite often because shortly afterwards detectives from Scotland Yard searched Roche offices, the Roche offices in Idle Lane. A former employee had told them that the cellars of the Idle Lane building were created or built from concrete. And he claimed that Roche um, were, was producing heavy guns down there for the German in the middle of London because of these uh, concrete cellars, which was of course not true. But in 1915, Roche again was blacklisted by the British government and this time the rumors uh, stated that Roche was producing poisonous gas for the German army. Um, I don't think they would have been capable of extracting poisonous gas from plants though. And eventually the Ministry of Foreign Affairs cleared Roche of all allegations and then even apologized 
to the company for the inconveniences caused. And this was very important because from then on, all false allegations could be very easily uh, proven wrong by the company. And it shows a, or it throws a very good light on the problems a global company faced at the time. Um, the Germans and the French also both blacklisted Roche. The Germans because of the La Roche in the company name, they thought it's a French company. And the French, they blacklisted Roche because of the Hoffmann in the company name, because they thought it's a German company. And <coughs> Roche therefore was very careful when it came to the Second World War and when the Second World War materialized on the horizon. Uh, I will tell you a little bit more about that. Uh, in a bit, little bit later in the presentation. But it really throws a good light on the problems a multinational company, which was based in Switzerland, but already globalized, as you have seen before, experienced in, in that time. The best-selling analgesic sedative Omnopone was ordered in large quantities by the Army and the Navy at the time. And it was also used by the British Expeditionary Force. And this was essential for building up Roche's excellent reputation with the leading surgeons of the time. But because the, um, the procurement of raw substances remained a major worry for the company, they tried to build up a known procurement department for Roche in the United Kingdom. So in 1916, Roche rented the Scottish island in Chlonaig, in Loch Lomond, in order to harvest Digitalis purpurea, red foxglove there, which was the essential ingredient for Digalin, the heart medicine. And as this did not prove very fruitful, um, they didn't extend the rent after one year. So in 1923, Mr. Knapp left the Roche company in London and the new general manager became Andrew Home Morton. We see him here at his desk. And Mr. Home Morton was also a member of Rotary International and he happened to be president of Rotary International at the time. And as Rotary held their global congress in London in 1923, Mr. Home Morton happened to be received, officially received by King George V in Buckingham Palace, not because of Roche, of course, but because of the, his Rotary International involvement. In 1921, Roche could also supply the Shackleton Road expedition with ready-to-use syringes with Roche products. That's um, the Tubinic um, syringe. I have a nice photograph of it here. It contained of a metal container here in the back and a syringe attached to it. And you would press the metal container with your fingers and, those, and thus administer a shot of, uh, of product to the patient. It was one of the first ready-to-use syringes, and it was particularly popular with the Army, the Navy, and of course in expeditions because it contained single-to-use doses of uh, pharmaceuticals in a, in a form with which you could take it to any expedition and you never had to open, open an ampule or a bottle and fiddle around with, uh, with uh, these kind of uh, small bottles and, and um, probably unsterile syringes. The Tupini credit use syringe became a bestseller in Roche, Britain, and in 1928, the School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene even asked for samples of the product, which were displayed in the new museum. 
1926, the general strike broke out in Britain and Roche had to shorten the working time to 10 o'clock till 4 o'clock and many employees were forced to commute to work on foot. And finally, in 1927, the company had grown so much that they had to move out of Idle Lane. We have here a nice photograph of the old entrance in Idle Lane. As you can see, in 1925, the staff had grown to 24 people. And so, Mr. Home Morton had to search for a new home of Roche, which he eventually found in Bowes Road, 51 Bowes Road. And this building had been erected by another company before, which was called the Carnegie Brothers. And they were producing strychnine, which had already eaten its way through the brick walls. So the whole thing had to be renovated first and additions were being built. And we have uh, some very good photographs of uh, the situation of that building at the time. Here we have Bowes Road and Russell Road. And Russell Road with the factory building attached to the administration building. The entrance looked, looked rather grand with a Roche logo, the double-shielded logo up there. And in the yard it looked slightly less grand, of course with a production premises situated at the back of the building. And as you can see, also women who were employed in the company were using heavy machinery at the time with the adressograph stenciling machine, which looks awfully complicated and dangerous for, my, for, for me, actually, when I have a look at this huge installation there. And this is Mr. Home Morton's office. It's the boardroom. And we also have the mailing dispatch room here and here the dangerous drugstore, which is quite interesting. The dangerous drugstore was made necessary in Britain in 1920 because the government enacted the Dangerous Drugs Act. Roche was visited at the time in Idle Lane still by uh, an inspector of the Ministry of Interior and they had to introduce these kind of compartments which were closed off by the authorities for the storage of products like Omnopone, the op opium analgesic sedative. This was meant by dangerous drugs. Here we have uh, the, at the time, modern facility for production of uh, substances in the Bowes Road premises, which didn't look uh, like what we would expect today with good manufacturing practice and so on and also here a subdividing room. Subdividing is also quite interesting. In 1932, Mr. Home Morton retired from his position and his successor became a gentleman called Henry Franz. And Mr. Franz was the one who really deepened the cooperation in between the Roche headquarters in Basel and Roche in the United Kingdom. And he also started sending workers of the UK facility to Roche, Switzerland. And in 1933, as a result of this modernization scheme he implemented, the first tableting machine was introduced in Roche in Bowes Road. And this caused a sensation among the British employees. It produced 30 tablets per minute, and today's machines, just to give you the comparative figure, manufacture up to 15,000 tablets per minute. Roche UK celebrated its 25th birthday on 16th of December 1933 and I think they celebrated in style. We still have the menu in our archives. 
Mr. Barrell, head of the company, rented Frascati's restaurant in Oxford Street and they gorged themselves on a nine-course dinner. And Dr. Barrell also presented Miss Toey and Mr. Forrest with commemorative watches because they also uh, celebrated their 25th year jubilee in the company. And at this occasion, um, I have this again from uh, the oral history, which was done with Miss Toey. At this, at this uh, celebration, Miss Toey and other senior staff members uh, created a new cocktail with the name Elixir Tonicum Compositum, and this proved to be highly popular, according to Miss Toey, and nobody could afterwards remember how they actually reached Charing Cross Station. <laughs> this must have been a very good celebration then, and I think it's also very fitting for Roche, which, as you've seen before, has advertised the products together with the Californian wine produced in the medical exhibition. Roche's breakthrough, medical breakthrough in Britain came more or less in 1935, when Dr. Mary Walker in Greenwich discovered a dramatic improvement in the state of her patients uh, who were suffering from myasthenia gravis, and she administered to them Prostigmine Roche, the product you see here, which was introduced already in 1931 for another indication, and this discovery really made the headlines in Britain and became the one important breakthrough for Roche as a specialist for niche medicines against rare diseases. This picture here is the last Christmas party in Bowes Road. Already in the mid-1930s, it became apparent that uh, Bowes Road was getting too small, too cramped. And the Christmas parties in Roche London were famous throughout the Roche group. After the First World War, they founded the Roche Entertainment Club, and this entertainment club not only organized the yearly Christmas party, but also excursions and trips to the seaside. And the Roche directors would play an active part in these parties. The head of marketing, Hugo Lorenz, for example, would play the piano. So as Bowes Road became more and more crammed, and as the Second World War loomed ahead, Roche had to take a series of measures to become prepared for the political difficulties which were already becoming more and more uh, extant. First of all, they split the group into two different entities. One was incorporated in, into F. Hoffmann, Laroche & Co. in Basel, and this group contained all the affiliates in mainland Europe. So everything in mainland Europe, Roche in Paris, in Milan, in uh, the Eastern countries, in Eastern European countries, in Germany, was incorporated into this company, F. Hoffmann, La Roche and Co. All the other affiliates, meaning Roche in the United Kingdom, Roche United States, Canada, Latin America, the Asian countries, was, were incorporated into a company called Sabak Corporation, which first was based in Liechtenstein and then moved to Montevideo in Uruguay. And the, both these groups were linked together with, with the shares. So if you bought a Roche share, you would automatically receive a Sapak share and vice versa. This was done in order to split one half of the group off should the Nazis succeed in taking over the whole of mainland Europe. Another measure touched a very sensitive field of Roche's intellectual property. Roche, of course, at the time already was a company devoted very much to new products and to science. And therefore, if Roche was to succeed in maintaining its position in the world, 
it was indispensable to move the research activities to the west, out of Switzerland to the west. So what they did is they created a research center in Nutley, in New Jersey, in the United States, and they hired a lot of Jewish chemists from mainland Europe who wouldn't get a position anymore in other Swiss companies, for example, at the time. And one of them was Leo Sternbach, um, who was taken out of Europe or brought out of Europe with one of the last ships to leave Europe in 1941. And this proved to be a very good decision by the company because Mr. Sternbach later in the 1950s developed the very first benzodiazepine tranquilizers of the company, Librium and Valium Roche. So um, it proved fruitful for the company that um, they hired all these Jewish scientists and brought them out of Europe before the war broke out. Roche in the UK, in the course of these decisions, became a major strategic asset for Roche as a company. It bore the role of a place marker for Roche's activities in Europe, on the one hand, but it also should act as a toehold for SAPAC in Europe in case that the Nazis would run over the entire of mainland Europe. And this explains the amount of care and dedication that went into the design of Roche's new factory in Wellin. And I would like to close the Bose Road years with this photograph of one of the subdividing rooms, which shows to you that Roche really does or has always extended great care on its photographic documentation and even a minor detail like this ray rat radiator on the ceiling of the mixing room number 13 was immortalized in a photograph, in a photo photograph of the Bose Road premises. In 1935, as you can see, Roche had 50 staff members in the UK. So, Roche found 20,000 square meter site in Welling Garden City in 1937 and they signed a contract, contract for a 999 year lease there. And this is how this uh, company uh, or what this plot of land looked like. There is this film company back there and here is uh, the other corner of the plot of land Roche intended to build its new buildings on. They could persuade Otto Salvisburg, house architect of the company, to design the new building of Roche in uh, the UK. And here again, the building site with uh, excavations starting. And Salvisburg really was intent or intended to create one of his masterpieces there. Here we have the excavations taking place, more or less by hand. There are some very good photographs in the archives of uh, the building process. Here another one with the uh, excavations being more or less finished. The pouring of the cement, the concrete. Here the building site, all in all, of uh, the new building. And here some photographs of um, the finishing touches in the interior, in the interiors of the building. And it becomes apparent that this was not the standard building when we have a look at these photographs with these glass blocks there. So, Rochewelling Garden City was intended to be a showcase of a novel industry, very much like the Basel-based factory, uh, should show the people that what Roche does and what Roche is, is something novel, new and extraordinary. And this shows in the picture which was designed by Professor Salvisberg for the well inside in a very modern style, certainly for Britain, um, there were not that many 
buildings of that scale in the modern style in Britain at the time. The Delaware Pavilion in Bexhill, of course, is uh, one of them, which was created by a good friend of Otto Salvisburg's, Erich Mendelssohn. Here another view of the Welling Garden City site. And in the Architects' Journal of the 19th of January 1939, a professor really declared Ross Welling Garden City site as the building of the year and the pinnacle of functional modern architecture. And as you can imagine, it very soon became a very popular destination for architects from Britain and abroad. That's the entrance situation with, uh, on the occasion of the opening of this new building, they abandoned the dreadful old name, the Hoffmann Laroche Chemical Works, and rebranded themselves Roche Products Limited, which was much more modern and much more fitting. Also, what happened at the same time is that they introduced the five-day week and the 40-week work at 40-hour uh, working week. This is the entrance hall, and this is the staircase in the glass block tower. Certainly, one of the exciting rooms and interior designs of Britain of the time. And the furniture used was tubular steel furniture provided by PEL, the famous tubular steel furniture company in Britain. The library with a special light uh, fitting designed by Professor Salvisberg. He also always designed the furniture. The furniture was standardized. All directors of Roche Worldwide had the same office and Mr. Franz was no exception with the Salvisberg standard lamp and the big double desk which is typical for Salvisberg's uh, buildings. The masterpiece in the building, however, is the boardroom, the boardroom with furniture designed by Salvisburg. And just by chance, one of Salvisburg's best friends from Berlin Times, the illustrator Walter Trier, happened to be in Britain when he traveled from Germany to Canada. And he designed a very nice mural for Rochewellin, which shows all the eccentricities of uh, uh, Britain with a Rochewellen garden site here in the middle and the artist sitting in a small boat in the corner the, uh, drawing the entire scene. Every detail was taken care of, like um, the bicycles, and very soon also the factory needed to be expanded because the demand for artificial vitamins especially was huge in Britain at the time and therefore factory buildings were created in these typical steel structures. They were also designed by Salvisburg and this is an aerial photograph of the entire site taken after the war of course but it shows the extent of um, the Berlin site here. Here a view of the vitamin C production. It was not only vitamin C, which was very important, but also the vitamins of the B complex, and that would become a strategic asset for the British government during the Second World War. Here we have a view of the uh, research laboratories, a very nice photograph also, and the packing, packaging department, packing Red Cross supplies in the 1940s already, um, as you can see there, and also Red Cross supplies being packed in the uh, shipping department. And here the fire brigade of uh, Rochewellin in peace times. This was soon to be changed, of course. On 3rd of September 1939, the Prime Minister declared war with Germany, and the 4th of September then was the first 
working day under the new political conditions. Rochevelin was determined to survive the war period and so sandbags were filled, staff recruited for the fire brigade and for organizing the blackout, which was not an easy task as you can see uh, considering the huge window surfaces of the new buildings which were created by Salvisburg. The first war months remained relatively quiet. The products of Roche were deemed invaluable for medicine and nutrition during the wartime and many scientists and workers were therefore not recruited for the army but left in Rochevelin to work there. But um, the surrounding plots of land were turned into vegetable gardens and the canteen had its own pick club, as you can see here. <laughs> this is the home guard of Rochevelin. Rochevelin not only had its own home guard, but the 4th Hertfordshire Battalion um, also had its headquarters at uh, Rochevelin. Mr. Franz, the head of the company, uh, sits therefore in his uniform in the Salisbury designed office and uh, Lewis gun was also installed on the top of the roof of Rochevelin Garden City, as you can see here. One of the major problems Roche faced was keeping up with the ever-increasing demand for the goods manufactured and as the nutritional value of food dropped, the vitaminization of food became of great importance and there was a major problem with the vitamins uh, in the food because Britons are ardent in the loathing of whole grain bread. This has changed slightly uh, till today, but um, this was much to the dismay of the Ministry of Interior and which tried hard at the time to persuade the consumers to prefer whole grain bread over white bread. But the solution found to that problem was that Roche simply stepped up the production of vitamin B1 and all the millers in Britain added vitamin B1 from that time onwards to the white flour which was used to produce bread. And so it became possible to ensure the supply of this essential vitamin to the public. We also have a photograph of people preparing for the worst case. Here, for example, the home guard um, disguising themselves for uh, the battle, training on weapons. And this is uh, the headquarters of the 4th Hertfordshire Battalion, which uh, was installed at the Roche uh, headquarters. The male fighting battalion of Roche Willing counted about 100 men, and as you can see, many female staff members also joined in. The sirens on the roofs of Rochevelin went the first time into operation on the 5th of September 1939 at 6.50 and they were set off the last time on 29th of March 1945 at 8.57 and in total they sounded their warning 938 times during the war. Blood donation, of course. And I would like to finish the war years with this nice photograph from the meeting room of Russian Wellin, and obviously they hid their rifles there, the fireplace. And I think it's a very fitting end for my presentation here. As you can see in 1946, the number of staff counted already 470 people. Today, more than 1,000 people are working for our operation in the UK. Um, of course, the Roche operation in the UK became more and more important 
not only for uh, the Wellin region, but later on also in Dal Rai in Scotland, where they erected a big vitamins factory um, after the Second World War. And it was very difficult getting people to work in Wellin at the time. So Roche even bought up houses and flats, which then were offered to employees uh, in order to lure people to that part of Britain. Well, this was it, my short presentation on Roche's history in the UK, which I hope I was able to contextualize with the uh, uh, history of Roche in total. You will find a lot of information which I haven't been able to tell you in the roughly one hour we've spent together this afternoon in a brochure you uh, have found on your seats. I hope you've enjoyed these facts about a Swiss company in Britain. And even though we don't sell our products today anymore with lovely mountain views, I hope that uh, you found it interesting to hear what uh, Roche has done in the past here in Britain. This event was recorded live on the 17th of February, 2011, at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>